So we're in the final chapter of this book, Be at Leisure, A Lutheran Approach to Outreach, uh, by Pastor Andy Richard, who I told you was a classmate of mine. We've gone through uh, eight different sections on this for the past eight weeks or longer. Uh, we talked about that outreach as opposed to a lot of the things that we see a lot of the popular material of church growth and evangelism, uh, they will start on the outside uh, first. And the Lutheran approach is to start on the inside, that we begin first with the church, and then, uh, yeah, from, from the church to the family, from the family to the strain, from the strain to our occupations and outside social circles. So the church is to be, the, the first thing we have to figure out is our motives, are we engaging in church outreach and evangelism for the right reason? Because we want people to be saved from hell? Or are we doing it to get numbers in the seats and to pay the lights? If, the, if it's the second reason, then you need to repent before engaging in this. Um, the, the first reason is the right reason. That we genuinely want to share this joy of salvation to others. Uh, then we talk about the approach. And in the church, we talk about faithfulness. Um, that's the first thing you uh, ensure in your own congregation is that it's faithful to the word of God, that the building and the church service and the liturgy and the hymns are beautiful, uh, that you're hospitable, that you're welcoming of the stranger in the congregation, while also practicing, uh, 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 practicing close communion, while also being faithful, um, we're still hospitable. Uh, the second thing is the family, and we talk about cro procreation, that for churches to grow numerically, there have to be people, and so that means have babies, and the more babies there are, the bigger the church is, and then it's not just enough to have the baby, but that you teach the baby and, and raise them in the way they should go, and they'll never depart, uh, that if everybody started doing that today, the church is going to look very different in 10 years, 15 years, so on and so forth. Uh, then we talked about the strain that are first calling, right, apart from the church, after the church and the family, our first calling is two members of the congregation who have departed from the faith or who have left the congregation and that we reach out to them. And we do this by acknowledging that we have responsibility to them. Uh, and second, uh, with impudence, that is with uh, perseverance, that we seek after them and we uh, long for them to come back and we keep reaching out to them. And it's not just the pastor or the elders, but the whole congregation um, that they do this out of joy uh, to try and get them back. And then finally, we're, we've been talking about the occupation where everybody goes out to their, I don't know, work, school, sports, whatever it might be. And the first thing we talked about was invitation. So that you, in order to engage in outreach and evangelism, you don't have to ha be eloquent or have something, some gimmick or thing to try and catch people into the faith or anything, but something very simple and humble of just inviting them to church and simply saying, hey, I'm going to church. Do you want to come with me? That's, that's enough. You, it doesn't have to be more elaborate than that. Uh, when it becomes more elaborate and more complicated than that, then people get timid and then they back off and then they just don't invite anyone at all. Now, uh, and then we're going to talk about... Uh, Whoops, I have this wrong. <clears throat> Two should be good works. 
and then um, and then at the end, uh, it's waiting. So uh, that's the second thing we're going to talk about today: good works, and then finally waiting here. So, <clears throat> what about good works? Uh, good works, the scriptures say, actually help in outreach, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. But I want to touch on the invitation again one more time uh, when we're talking about this. Yes. Yeah, I recorded it. Yep. I turned it on. So, yeah, I still I got to go back and re-record the one that I missed on the straying. It was good. And I'm so frustrated with myself because I had thoughts that I already forgot about. So I'm not going to be able to recapture it. But anyway, um, so when we're talking about the invitation, um, <clears throat> One of the problems is that people will combine invitation with personality um, so that a lot of Christians will falsely believe that you need to have a certain personality for outreach. Like you have to be pretty engaging or charismatic. You've got to be some <laughs> boisterous, extroverted sort of person. And so we make this distinction of introverts and extroverts and uh, whether you get your energy from being alone or you know, you're amped up and get energized being around people. And then, oh, well, if you're better around people and more excited around them, then you're going to be better at evangelism and outreach. Well, that, that's, a, that's not a good idea. Um, and that's actually, I think, harmful uh, to, to outreach to kind of instill that idea. Um, a lot of people are shy. I, I get that. And, and we should just recognize that. Uh, it also depends on the situation. You're shy in certain situations more than others, right? And you're more reserved in some and, and things like that. But um, people will think that shyness is a hindrance to outreach. And uh, they become ashamed of their introversion. Right? They say, well, look, I actually enjoy just sitting at home reading a book, kind of being quiet and alone. And apparently with all the evangelism stuff, I can't do that sort of stuff. I just have an anxiety when it comes to talking to people about this. So just the natural personality of the person is now seen as maybe something that's sinful or something to be ashamed of. And that's not true. In fact, what I've noticed in my time here at Zion is that shy people tend to be some of the best at inviting people to church. <laughs> they're just really good at it. And they, they're, they're usually not extroverted, but they will just tell people, like, hey, I'm going to church. Do you, do you want to come? And, and they're, they're fine with that. Um, again, going back to what the invitation is, it doesn't have to be this long pitch or, or a sales pitch or you have one moment to do it. Um, okay, so that's the, the first thing. I want to clear that up about personality and and reaching out or inviting people. The second thing is the uneasiness when it comes to outreach. So the question is this, why are people uneasy when it comes to talking about outreach? You might get asked a question you don't know. Yeah, okay, yeah. So you, you might get asked a question you don't know. You might get stumped, and then you say, ah, what do I do? I should have learned this, and then you get, um, you know, you don't want to get trapped in this. <clears throat> I think one of the things here is that why people are so uneasy about outreach is because they have a false understanding of, of good works. And I'll explain that here. Um, 
there is a sinful tendency in man to invent things that you think are good and then convince yourself that you're doing good with the works that you made up. Um, for, for example, Matthew 15 says this. This is Jesus' words. He says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, so in other words, uh, they're following more of what they invented or thought of instead of what God has clearly said. So let me give you one example of this, Uh, an example of false good works. Actually, why don't you come up with one? What do you think the chief false good work is? Evangelist, sorry? Tolerance. Tolerance, yeah. Yeah, you just make that up and it's against God's word, right? That's that's a good one. Um, That's today. I would say monasteries are the chief false good work. That it appears good, it looks good, sounds good, it seems pious, but it is actually wrong. Why? Because God never commanded that. Um, So, what monasteries are is that men would seclude themselves and then they'd go and do holier works. They would take a vow of celibacy, a vow of... So I'm not going to get married. I'm going to take a vow of poverty and I'm just going to read all 150 psalms each and every week. And that is now holier than you guys. Than you guys coming to church and just... You're not reading psalms, all 150 psalms a week. So that's better, right? Or that they are... Um, uh, they took a vow of poverty. Well, you, you didn't, so that, that's better. Okay, so if you compare it this way, just in our minds, rationally speaking, yeah, if you had to work your way to heaven, then that totally makes sense. Then you would want to do more things instead of less things. But a good work is not defined by your sincerity um, only, or what you think is a good work. Good works are defined by what God says a good work is. Um, I'll, I'll get on this in a, in a moment, but I want to read to you uh, Luther's large, or, yeah, his large catechism on the fourth commandment. He says this. Oh, what a high price would all Carthusians, monks, and nuns pay if in all their religious doings they could bring into God's presence a single work done by virtue of his commandment and be able before his f- face to say with a joyful heart, Now I know that this work is well-pleasing to you. Where will these poor, wretched persons hide when in the sight of God and all the world they shall blush with shame before a young child who has lived according to this commandment and shall have to confess that with their whole life they are not worthy to give it a drink of water? And it serves them right for their devilish perversion in uh, in treating God's commandment, or sorry, in treading God's commandment underfoot, that they must vainly torment themselves with works of their own device, and in addition, have scorn and loss for their reward. So, <clears throat> so the idea here is that um, what, is, what is better, being a monk or being a mother? A mother. Why? Because God, exactly, you're fulfilling what God said to do. When, but he never told you to go be a monk. 
He never said that. So, so what's better? To be a mother. Because God made you a mother. What's better? Being a... Uh, uh, well, you can't be a mother or a monk. I meant a nun. Sorry. Uh, maybe today you can be. <laughs> um, so the, the, the thing is, is that we're setting up between works that we have invented versus works that God has commanded. Uh, and we can say, look, I'm going to walk on my knees for, for 10 miles to please God. When what would he rather have you do? Show up on, to church on Sunday. That is a far better work than blooding your knees on the, on the ground, right? Why? Because God gets to define what is good and holy and not me and you. This is the point. So the monasteries, I'm not taking away their motives. They're very pious. The monks are pious and the nuns are very pious and they're good. But they have invented good works that God does not have, has never asked for. That's the problem. This is, this is what Luther had the problem with uh, during... This was not the chief issue. The chief issue of the Reformation was always the forgiveness of sins. How is a man justified before God? That was the issue. There are other things that surround it. The Pope, uh, Mary, the saints, so on and so forth. One of them was the monasteries. That you're, you're, you're taking your, upon yourself a vow to uh, not get married uh, when God says that marriage is a good thing. And you can be holy in your marriage. The marriage is sanctified by those who believe in the Lord. Um, okay, so the, the connection here is that when we create these false good works, uh, we kind of hold them above what God has actually said to do. So, and I think the, the, the issue here is that when we create this false idea of what is good when it comes to evangelism and outreach, it oftentimes intrudes on what God actually said about outreach and evangelism. So we, we have these words um, kind of like, uh, um, yeah, uh, so we have these words like mission or missional. Have you guys heard this before? <laughs> um, they've come to mean things that are kind of extra holy or above and beyond outreach. So if you're missional, we're a missional church. What does that mean? Well, are we not? <laughs> right? Well, what is, what is a missional church as opposed to just a church? Um, now, I, yes, I grant that the word means something. Going on, on a mission, that we have missionaries who've gone to the Dominican Republic. or that, That's a good thing. God has done that through the office of the ministry. But what are they doing? They're not doing anything different. They're not. In fact, you, back in May, you guys heard a bunch of missionaries come here. They all decided to come at the same time. And they, all, and, and they explained what was going on. And it all looked the same. Like, oh yeah, they followed along our service. A guy from Russia, a guy from uh, Spain, uh, in Puerto Rico. Like, they're able to follow along in this service. And they said, yeah, we're doing the same thing over there. That's all it is. It's just a change of language and location. So, but the problem is, is that this word has morphed into something different. And there's this false dichotomy in, in the Lutheran church where they say, well, are you a confessional church or are you a missional church? Why, why are you making a division there? there yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. I, I, we're both. Um, do we love missions? Of course we love missions. What, what's the mission? To, that, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to the world. And I'm happy to do that. And we're all happy to do that uh, in, in our vocations. Um, do we confess? Yes. 
These things go together. We're not, we're not going to separate the two. Um, so that's the first thing is that a missional is somehow better. Like you're, you love people more as opposed to if you're confessional, then you're just kind of a rude stick in the mud who just, you're German. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So apparently that's what it means. But if you're not German, then you're more missional. It's, it's dumb. It's a bad idea. Um, the, the, other, the other thing is uh, activities and handouts. <clears throat> so things like canvassing uh, or uh, handing out tracks or tallying your invitations, counting them up. Do you remember years ago, probably decades ago, do you remember the Ablaze program? Yes. Yes? Okay. So there was a thing online called like the Ablaze counter. So this was past my time. By the, t- by the time I started to become aware of what it meant to be Lutheran, that was kind of on its way out. So, but I just kind of read through history and talk to people. They told me that there was a counter online that every interaction you had, like if you, if you went out to, I don't know, to Chick-fil-A and then um, somebody sneezed and you said, God bless you, or you, you, you have some interaction with the gospel and you say, hey, uh, uh, do you go to church? You should go to this church or something. Then you would go online and then you would mark your, your tally, right? And, and then they had this counter, and it says, we're, we're going ablaze. We're setting the church ablaze in the spirit, and that everybody's being reached out to and things. <clears throat> so that's one of the things, tallying your like, invitations or outreach things. There's community events, uh, mission, like tracks or cubes, things like this. Evangelism, beads. Have you guys heard of this? Yes. Uh, yeah, th- things like that. Uh, or coins. Going on mission trips and stuff. The idea is that this, all of this, these activities are what? Above and beyond. So that coming to church is kind of like, oh, that's, that's not really cutting it. But if you want to be uh, extraordinary, then you, then you engage in, in these other things. Yeah. Yes. No, I remember, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. Right, yes, I, I know. It's the blue book. that It's a little blue book. Yeah, okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so there's, yeah, th- this, is, this is the issue. And, and the point of that book, I kind of skimmed through it, and after the first four pages, you get the point. Um, so you read it. And it's actually saying all these things that, okay, we're kind of a dead church. If you just kind of sit here, come to church, receive the forgiveness, go home. But you, you, wanna, you want your church to be on fire and to be a missional church. And then this, that's what this book is to do. And apparently it's been said that it uh, now replaces the catechism. Um, which, by the way, just a footnote here. The catechism, the small catechism is the best, the best theological work on the scriptures ever, period. That is the best text on the Bible that has ever been written. The number one book is the the scriptures. The number two is the catechism, 100%. And I I will die on that hill every time. Um, and, And I'm happy to show you why. It is a compendium of the scriptures. You take all of the scriptures, condense it down, into these six chief parts, and it's beautiful. 
that you can go, turn back to it years, decades later and still find the joy of the simplicity of the gospel there and all, everything of, of the law of God. So, but yeah, but to say that it's, it's going to be, right, something replaces the catechism, that's, I, that's wrong. That's very wrong. And uh, um, unfortunately, people believe this. Um, uh, but again, what the, the issue there is that what? I, I'm pretty certain, I'm speculating here, but the issue there is that the catechism is more confessional and this new book is more missional. Yeah. Yeah. And how, you know, he did all this work, wax on, wax off, and he, he says, well, when are you going to teach me karate? And the Ivy, Mr. Miyagi, he goes through a thing, and all of a sudden he's doing this stuff with his hands, which is karate. Yeah. He never knew it before. That's kind of what I told catechumens. You That's... learn this, and you will be able to hold forth like with a Jehovah's Witness. Yes. You learn the second article of the creed. That, it's true, it's true. That, that is the best tool uh, for evangelism is the catechism. Is learn, that's such a good example. I'm going to use that from now on. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Miyagi. So the, 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 but the point there is you have to learn this. It, it categorizes in your mind uh, systematically all of theology. Everything you could possibly talk about in theology fits in the catechism. And again, the catechism isn't something Luther invented. That's been going throughout church history. The explanations is what he, what he adds there. Uh, even the order he changed. And that's for another class. But, yeah. So, when I was growing up in Wyoming, we had a lot of Mormons. And they would always, they would always say, well, the book of the Bible is what we believe. And they're like, well, how do you use the catechism? Because that's how they would compare the book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so the catechism is not inspired by God. It's not infallible. Quote the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we're not saying that the catechism is infallible. We're saying that it did not fail. <laughs> right? Uh, that when you judge it according to the scriptures, uh, you will find that there's nothing in the catechism that the scriptures don't say. That's the point. So this is the difference between the scriptures that are inspired, inerrant, infallible, they cannot fail, versus the catechism, which could have failed, but when you judge it against the scriptures, you realize, I can't refute this. I told you, I gave you this example, but now that it's recording, I'll, I'll give it again. Uh, the Duke of Bavaria uh, uh, called the Lutherans. He said, Lutherans, uh, come up here uh, for the Augsburg Confession. Come up here and tell us everything you believe. And so they, they wrote the Augsburg Confession, which is essentially like the catechism. It's just drawn out a little bit more. Um, and so the Duke of Bavaria is listening to this and he's saying, okay, I'm hearing all this stuff Lutherans say about the Lord's Supper, about baptism, about the church, about the gospel, about salvation. And he's kind of getting overwhelmed and saying, I, I, we gotta, I don't know how to, how to do this. How do, how do we refute these guys? So he turns to, to John Eck, the the, the most brilliant Catholic theologian, he turns to him and he says, hey, um, John, how do we refute these guys? And he said, not with scripture, but with the fathers. So in other words, we, the Lutherans presented their doctrine and the Roman Catholic Church admitted, said, we can't refute you guys if it just comes to scripture alone. <laughs> That's what they said. 
Uh, but you're going to have to use some quotes from people, <laughs> from other people to try and, and refute what you're saying. And, and that's the point. Um, so what we're saying then with Lutheran theology is we're saying, well, it's right. Why? Because it comes from the scriptures. And when you judge it against the scriptures, it's, uh, uh, it, it doesn't fail. It doesn't fail the test. Um, I've told you this, too, about the Lord's Supper, that every denomination has some interpretation of the Lord's Supper. They say, well, this is an interpretation of the words, except for Lutherans. We don't have an interpretation of the Verba Domini. We just have the words. The, the words are our theology. So when the, when the scripture says, when Jesus says, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Uh, take and drink, this is the, the, um, my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Then we don't explain it. We just say, amen. That's it. He, he said so. Uh, God is capable of doing this. He's capable of a lot of things. In fact, nothing is impossible for him. So if he says he's going to do this, he promised to do it, well, then he will, and he has. That's it. That's my faith. So our theology as Lutherans is the scriptures, right? Uh, and the reason the Book of Concord is so big is to prove, right, to, to say, look, we're, we're ref- responding and refuting all of these other arguments and saying, why aren't we saved by works? Well, here's the reasons. Here's all the scripture verses. So it had to be lengthy. But, okay, let me get back to the, the point here, which is uh, when, when you kind of get this idea that, okay, we're a confessional or missional, then you've divided the church, and then you say, well, to be confessional is to uh, not love or reach out to people, or to reach out to people is not to be so strict and, and faithful with theology, um, that in order to reach out to people, you have to somehow give up your confession. That's not true. That's not true. To reach out to people, you need a confession. People can't come to church unless there's a confession of faith. Um, And we talked about this, how churches grow and things like that. Um, So when Christians hear outreach or evangelism, that's kind of immediately what they think of is is these kind of elaborate things, going door to door, debating on the street corners, things like this. The, The problem is that these sort of things become more impressive and expert uh like kinds of outreach while normal life is more mundane and lowly and so the uneasiness that i was telling you about is the uneasiness to invite people to church comes because people will compare their normal ordinary life to this idea of evangelism what it's supposed to look like which is go knocking on doors going uh, doing all these extravagant things and so when they realize the, the issue or this discrepancy here, then they say, um, I can't, I, I'm, I'm not cut out for that. I can't do that. And so they, they give up. It also causes Christians to feel guilty for neglecting the things that, they're not, that, that are not sinful to neglect. Is it, let me, let me put it this way. Is it sinful to not go door to door, knocking on doors to convert people? No, it's not sinful to not do that. Is it uh, uh, sinful to not stand on the street corner and preach? No, it's not. So, uh, so I, 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 I really want that to be important and uh, for you, to, that you realize we do what God tells us to do and not what we think 
uh, would please God. And I want to make this distinction between evangelists and mothers. Um, so there are like self-titled evangelists who go spend time and money uh, in congregations, going door to door, witnessing to everyone, standing on street corners, handing out brochures, uh, and so on. And then you have that image. And then the other image is that of a mother who uh, carries her baby, gives birth to the baby, feeds the baby, changes the baby's diaper, um, uh, prays for the baby, and sweating and struggling to bring the baby to church. Um, who's doing the better work? The mother. Uh, the, the, the mother is here. The, because the mother... Uh, but the problem is, is that the mother is going to think that she's what? Not she's not doing enough. Like, like the idea is... Well, once my baby grows up or once the kid grows up, then I can go and be real missional. Then I can go and engage and, and canvas the, the homes and do all this stuff. And so this is almost what the baby is almost a hindrance to outreach. It's that, that, that be, the vocation of motherhood is now in the way of being a, a, a missional Christian. And that's the problem. So... Um, so what I want to get out of your head is the idea that one of these is more evangelistic or better for outreach as, than the other, uh, which is going to yield better results or things like this. Um, now, let me clarify something here. Is it wrong? Is it sinful to go door to door or to have a community event or go on a short-term mission trip? No. I hope not. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it's not <laughs> sinful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're enjoyable, and, and you learn a lot, and you give a lot. and right? there's, there's some benefits to these sort of things. Right? It's like to go help build a seminary in the Dominican Republic. A number of people have done that. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, so it's not sinful to do that. Just so long as you don't think highly of yourself for it, or think that you're doing something that's better or more effective... And so long as you don't neglect your own vocation to do it. So if, if you then have the idea that, look, I've, been, uh, I've just been sitting in the pews, coming to church, talking to members, having coffee with them. And, and I, the, in order for me to really be engaged in outreach and evangelism, i got to get out there. That's not, or to say that that's better, right? Or that this is a hindrance to me. Um, that's wrong. And I, I really want you to take that to heart. Don't, don't view it that way. It's not wrong to go on a mission trip. It's not wrong to help build things. It's not wrong. It's not. But to think that it's better is wrong. To think that it's more effective is wrong. To think that you're, doing, you're fulfilling God's word or pleasing God more through that, that's, that's wrong. Um, so I've talked about outreach and false works. So I want to talk about outreach and true good works. How... How is outreach and good works, how do they actually go hand in hand? So what are the actual good works that God has given Christians to do? Um, In the small catechism, uh, we see the first chief part is the Ten Commandments. And that's what God gives to all people to do. And then there's something at the very end of the catechism. What is it? This is probably the most neglected part of the catechism. Yes, the table of duties. 
Um, that is at the end. So the Ten Commandments tell what all people are to do, right? This is for everyone. But the table of duties applies to certain people at certain times. So if you have your hymnal... Oh, we put them away? Never mind. Oh, okay. So if you turn to the hymnal, to page 3, starting at page 321, 328 is this. Okay, yes, 328, we have the table of duties. Unfortunately, they're not written out here, so you have to look up each text. But this section comes after the prayers, so after the sacrament of the altar, and there's the, the daily prayers, and then section 3, the table of duties. And then it says, to, to bishops, pastors, and preachers. And then it shows these texts. This isn't exhaustive, but the, the most primary text. It shows text of what a pastor owes to his congregation. So for me, so you're not pastor, so that doesn't really apply to you. It's good to know, so you say, I know what to expect from my pastor. But it, this is for me that I read this and say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. For, in order to be a good pastor, I've got to do that. Well, then, on the other hand, there's a relationship there. You can't be a pastor without a congregation and, and vice versa. Um, it is what the hearers owe their pastor. Right? So that both, it, it's a mutual thing. So the pastor has a certain set of duties that is different from the congregation. And the congregation has a different set of duties from the pastor. But God has called them both in the scriptures to do something for one another. So it starts there. Again, with the civil government. Of the civil government and then of citizens. What does the government owe to the people? And then what do the people owe to the government? That's in the Bible. That's, that's what it says. What do husbands owe to their wives? And then what do wives owe to their husbands? Uh, what do parents owe to their children? And children to their parents. It, and it's not the same. These things aren't the same. Um, a child is commanded to listen to his father and mother. But do, is, um, are, are mothers and fathers commanded to listen to their children? No, not, no, you're, you're not. Um, you're, your job is to speak to the children and to speak a very specific word, that you train them up in the way that they should go. So that this is a duty that parents have, and you don't have that authority until you become a parent. And everybody was a child at one point, so everybody has had to keep the fourth commandment, and so on and so forth. So this is what it does. This Section is one of the most wonderful sections in all of Scripture. Um, sorry, in all of the Catechism, because it lists out the Scriptures that show you what you are to do in your vocations. And so each person has a number of different or vocations in their life. That you're a son, as well as a husband, as well as a father, as well as a, an employee, as well as a citizen. So then you find what you owe to those above you. Um, so th this is the point. Uh, these are actual good works. And the table of duties begins by saying certain passages of scripture for various holy orders and positions, admonishing them about their duties and responsibilities. Um, so what Luther calls this is the holy orders uh, because the monks were saying, no, we're doing the holy thing. And then uh, Luther says, no, that's not the holy thing because you don't have God's word. Uh, we have God's word, therefore this is then holy. Okay, so let's talk about what good works actually do. First Timothy 5.25 says this, Good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. 
Meaning, uh, here Paul is talking about good works that they're, they're seen by others, they're witnessed. Why, why are they conspicuous? That is, they're noticeable. Why are good works noticeable that way? Yeah, exactly. Because you need an object for the good work. You need a person that you're helping. So when you help somebody, the person is witnessing you help them, right? So that good works are, are even um, are conspicuous. But even those that are not, that are not, cannot be hidden. So that even works done in the dark are still seen and still noticed by someone. Um, and at the very least, God himself. Uh, Matthew 5.16 says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, I want you to take that text along with what he says in Matthew 6. But Matthew 5 says, Do your good works, and when people see your good works, what are they going to do? They're going to thank God. They're going to give glory to your Father in heaven. You take that along with Matthew 6 when Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So there, there's a, you have to take that together. When people see your good works, this is great. This is a great thing. And um, Jesus even says that they would glorify your Father in heaven when they know why you've done it. So you don't say, uh, if you do something nice, I don't know, if you're feeding the poor and the homeless, you don't say, well, I'm doing this because I'm trying to work my way to heaven. No, you, you just tell them, I'm doing this because uh, Christ has saved me from my sins. And he saved you too. Believe it. Um, that, that you're doing this out of thankfulness. Like the, the whole point of the sermon today is like, yeah, this is great. You have good works. And you're doing great works. Things better than the people around you. It's fantastic. But don't ever put your trust or hope in those works to save you. Uh, don't, don't think of them uh, that way. So... So anyway, that people are going to see your good works, they'll glorify your Father in heaven. But at the same time, don't do it for that very purpose that people would see you. Uh, so you don't go out of your way to be like, well, guess what I did today, right? And, and then you tell everybody. Um, you try to hide it as much as possible. And then if people see it, they see it. Uh, by the way, when, when something genuinely good is done, uh, you don't have to tell somebody to talk about it, right? Like, if there's a good restaurant, then you just automatically tell people, oh, this was a great restaurant. And the restaurant didn't have to say a thing. Jesus did this many times. He would heal somebody, and then he would tell them what? Don't say anything. anything, Because I don't want people coming to me thinking that I'm just a magician or a doctor, that I can just heal their things and, and they leave. I'm here to save their souls. So I don't want this word to get out that, that they just get free stuff from me. Well, what did they do? They went out and then they told people. They couldn't stay silent, right? God healed them. So th- this is the issue. Uh, yeah, so uh, we could talk about that later. Um, so you don't try to be seen, but when they are seen, uh, that you give glory to God and the one who received it too. Matthew 5.14, Jesus says this, A city on a hill can't be hidden. Uh, this is a little more... Um, maybe difficult to understand, but uh, the point here is that the, Christ, or the world is going to notice the Christian's good works. Um, nobody builds a city for the sole purpose of gaining attention, right? You, you don't do that. You don't say, well, we're building this so that people can see us. But people build cities, why? For what reason? 
Yeah, for protection, that they have homes to live in, that they have an economy, things like that. So you build a city. That's the primary reason. Uh, but then, um, so the, the, the main reason people build it so they have necessities in life. But nevertheless, a city that shines on a hill uh, draws people to it. People see it. So if you see this hill uh, and there's a city on top and it's lit up, then people are going to be drawn to it. Now, even though that was not the purpose of building the city, it's a result of what happens uh, from that. So in the same way, Christian works aren't done for the purpose of outreach, um, but it oftentimes is the result of it. So that when you're helping someone, or I don't know, cleaning something up or whatever, uh, people will ask you for the hope that you have in you. Why, why are you doing this? Why did you go out of your way to, to do this? And then that's your moment. Then you just say, because I love Jesus, and I know Jesus loves me, and uh, he forgives my sins, and I, I don't do these good works to earn anything. So th- this is the point, that you're going to be called upon to make a confession, and you'll be ready. And the best way to be ready to make that confession is to learn the catechism, learn the scriptures well, uh, so that it's on on your tongue and you can speak it. Um, so I want to uh, close with this part where there, there's no such thing as this category of good works like the good works of outreach. That doesn't exist. Um, at, because you would... You have this in mind that you have uh, good works of outreach, and then another category over here of just plain old good works. <laughs> so to, to, to separate those two things, that's wrong. That's not true. Um, there is no special outreach duty that Christians have over and above their regular duty or vocation. So there's not a special set of evangelism work that you have to do um, to say, well, I'm a mother, but now I have, in order to to go above and beyond that, now I have to take on the special works of outreach. That's not true. Uh, Rather, in your vocation uh, as a mother, then you're a Christian mother. Be the best mother in that way possible. Um, So the same thing is even inviting people to church isn't a work that's solely for outreach. Inviting people to church is for the sake of, of uh, your neighbor. It's to, to love them. Um, I want to close with this. This is a quote from the book where Pastor Richard says, the biggest obstacle to outreach is this. He says, with, with all this in mind, it's fair to say that our biggest obstacle when it comes to outreach is that we talk about outreach too much. <laughs> outreach happens naturally as we attend to the things that God has given us to do within our vocations, whether we mention the word outreach or not. So th- this, is, this is the issue, is that so much of teaching in the church has been replaced with just go out there and convert people. Go out there, convert people. Where almost every single sermon turns into just an evangelism spiel, right? So that you... I don't know, um, I don't know, uh, you, you could get a miracle of Jesus and then say, well, now you have to go out and share the good news. I, I've heard, we've heard, all heard sermons like this where they end at the same point every time, that the point of the sermon is the same. Go out and 
and help somebody come to church. Go out and, and do this. Go out and do this. And it ends. Uh, it's so predictable in this way. And what it's doing is it's forcing in this idea of evangelism into each and every text. As opposed to just saying, well, what does the text say? And drawing that out. Now, w- once you hear what the text says, once you hear what the Bible says, um, and you believe it, well, then that's going to come out naturally in your lives. You're going to talk to friends about this. You're going to, it's just going to come up in conversation. Um, and, and you can point to these things. So let me open up for questions here.